Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. The Peter Schiff Show. I'd like to thank Indeed for supporting my podcast. When hiring gets hard, you need Indeed, the job site that makes hiring incredibly simple. You just attract, interview, and hire. In fact, with Indeed, you can get all your hiring done in just one place, even interviewing. If you're hiring, you need Indeed. Get started now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash Peter. Offer valid through September 30th. Terms and conditions apply. Well, on Monday, it was announced that a federal district court threw out the antitrust allegations of the federal government against Facebook. The government was accusing Facebook of being a monopoly based on the fact that it acquired Instagram and WhatsApp, and so now it was so dominant in social media and messaging to constitute a monopoly that the government somehow needed to break up under antitrust acts. Well, the district court threw it out, hopefully for good. As a result of this ruling, shares of Facebook hit a new all-time record high. In fact, Facebook has now joined a very select club of stocks that have market caps in excess of $1 trillion. They are Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, and Alphabet. If you don't know, Alphabet is the name of the company that owns Google. But those are now the companies with trillion-dollar market caps. Now you can add Facebook into the mix. Although Facebook is not totally out of the U.S. government's crosshairs, it's possible there can be an appeal or maybe they'll take some of the criticism from the district court and kind of incorporate it and alter their charges somewhat and maybe try to file them again. I don't know, but the whole thing is completely ridiculous. Facebook is not a monopoly. It doesn't need to be broken up. I mean, the whole theory behind why monopolies are supposedly bad and why the government needs to break them up is that once you acquire a monopoly in a particular industry, Well, you jack up your prices and you really gouge the consumer. So it's to protect the consumer from monopoly pricing 
because the consumer is served best when you have a competitive market because that keeps prices low. But if a monopolist has no competition, well, there's nothing to stop him from really you know, sticking it to the customer with high prices. And therefore, the government needs to come in and bust up these monopolies to preserve a competitive environment to keep prices low. Well, think about Facebook. Is Facebook ripping off any of its customers with high prices? No, it's giving its stuff away. Nobody pays to use Facebook. I mean, I've had a Facebook account for a long time. A lot of you are probably following me on Facebook. I've never paid a nickel to Facebook to have that account. Nobody pays anything to have a Facebook account. It's free. And so if a company is giving its products away for free, by definition, it's not galsy anybody. So even if Facebook had a monopoly, which it doesn't, but even if it did, who cares? It's giving away the products. They're free. So nobody is being harmed by this so-called monopoly. Now, of course, you could take another perspective on who the customers are. You can say, hey, the individuals that have Facebook accounts, they're not really the customers because they don't pay any money. They're part of the product. The customers are the advertisers who are paying Facebook to be able to advertise to all the people who have free accounts. Okay, but if you look at it from that perspective, then you would have to say Facebook has a monopoly on advertising, meaning that Facebook's customers, its advertisers, have no other place to advertise. The only place they can run ads is on Facebook. And because Facebook has now monopolized advertising and because their customers have no choice because the only place they can really advertise is on Facebook, now Facebook is going to rip off its customers and overcharge for ads, which of course, again, is sheer nonsense. Facebook doesn't even come close to having a monopoly on ads. I mean, it doesn't even have a monopoly on ads on the internet because, of course, Facebook competes with Google. Uh, you know, they have a lot of ads on that search engine. But not only search engines, every single website that exists competes for ads. I've got ads on my podcast. I compete with Facebook. Advertisers can buy ads on the Peter Schiff show. Right? There is so much competition. In advertising now, I would probably say that the ad market is now more competitive than it's ever been in history. People have more choices when it comes to how to spend their advertising dollars. Because not only do you have the entire internet to advertise on, which includes Facebook and there are other companies like WhatsApp and Instagram, but it includes all of the other traditional advertising lines that existed before the internet. I mean, people still watch television. There's commercials on television. People still buy magazines. I mean, believe it or not, print still exists. There's ads in there. There's still direct mail. I get mail, snail mail ads all the time. And of course, you get you know junk mail through the internet. I mean, we've never had so many ways for people to advertise. So for the government to somehow claim that Facebook has a monopoly, it's sheer lunacy. But this is what the government does. The government just has to justify its existence and it harasses U.S. businesses. This is the entire history of antitrust. None of it has benefited the consumer. None of it has benefited the economy. The whole thing has been a lie since it was initially conceived. Look, the idea that monopolies that somehow form on their own in a free market are bad for an economy is just wrong. It's just not based on fact. And there's been no real world examples of where this is true. I mean, the only time monopolies have ever been able to engage in the type of pricing that everybody is worried about is when the government comes in and grants them a legal monopoly and then uses the power of the state to quash their competitors and to keep other people from entering the market. So absent government intervention, there will not be any predatory monopolies. Now, I'm not saying it's impossible for a business in the private sector to become so dominant in a particular industry that you could call it a monopoly. 
but it's nothing that the consumer has to fear because in a free market, the only way that you can maintain your dominance in a market is by giving the consumers high quality products at a low price. Because if you don't do that, you will lose your monopoly to a competitor. Now, a lot of people try to claim, no, that's ridiculous because once you are a monopoly, nobody is going to compete with you because you will drive them out of business with predatory pricing. This is what is argued, that the monopolist is going to just, as soon as somebody tries to compete, they're going to slash their prices and they're going to drive that upstart out of business. And as soon as they're out of business, well, they're going to jack the price back up again. But in practice, this actually doesn't happen. And you can even look at it logically to understand why it doesn't happen. Let's say I am a monopolist and I have monopolized an industry. Let's say it's widgets, right? I, I'm the only widget manufacturer. You want to get a widget, you got to buy mine, right? Well, I got 100% of the market. And let's say I'm gouging my customers uh, the way monopolists are supposed to gouge them. So I'm really making these excess profits, monopoly profits, because I have no competition. Well, obviously, big excess profits are a magnet to competition. Other people around see all the money that I'm making selling my widgets and they want a piece of my action. So now a company comes up, raises some money, and decides to start competing with me and selling some widgets. And let's say this little upstart company manages to get 1% of the market. I still got 99% of the widget market, and here's this little company that's got 1% of the market. Now, according to this theory, I am supposed to slash my prices so low and take a huge loss But I'm this big company and I can afford this big loss. And now I'm going to put my little competitor out of business. They're going to go bankrupt because I'm going to force them out of business because I'm selling at a loss. And then once they go out of business, well, then I just raise my prices back up. Well, here's the problem. I've got 99% of the market. If I sell at a loss, I'm selling at a huge loss because I'm losing money on 99% of the market. My competitor is only losing money on 1% of the market. So I have to sustain massive losses, much bigger than this competitor, in order to drive that competitor out of business. And even if I do drive them out of business and then jack my prices back up, well, somebody else is going to come in knowing that I'm weakened because I've just lost so much money on this huge piece of the market and now another company starts up and what now they're going to force me to lose even more money eventually I'm going to go out of business because I'm going to lose so much money trying to maintain my monopoly the best thing a monopolist can do if I've got a hundred percent of the market and now I lose one percent and I've only got 99 percent it's better to keep making a profit on 99 percent of the market than lose a fortune on 99 percent of the market to try to get that one percent of the market back that I lost so the monopolist is not going to drive the competitor away the monopolist is simply going to allow the competition the way the monopolist keeps the competitors away is by being so efficient by offering prices that are so low and quality that is so high that it doesn't make any sense for anybody to compete, that there aren't any monopoly profits, that the profits are reasonable. And therefore, even if there is a monopoly, it's not really hurting the consumer. Because the reason we want competition is to get low prices. We don't want competition for the sake of having competitors. Well, if we get low prices without competition, then we don't need it. Because the fear of potential competition in many cases can be just as good as actual competition. But you know, what we've actually seen throughout history is when the government has gotten involved in breaking up so-called monopolies, it's not the customers who are complaining. It's the competitors of the so-called monopolist. They're complaining because they can't compete because the monopolist is so efficient that they're offering products at a lower price or a higher quality than the competition is able to match. And so it's the inefficient competitors that want to break up the monopolies so that they can charge higher prices. So the consumer ends up getting ripped off by government actions, so-called protection from monopoly. In fact, the most recent example that I could recall of the absurdity of the government claiming to protect the consumer from Monopoly was back in 2005. And at that time, two 
video rental companies, Blockbuster and Hollywood Entertainment, wanted to merge. Now, for those of you who are young and listen to my podcast, I'll tell you, once upon a time, if you wanted to watch a movie, you had to drive down to a video rental store. And in that store, you had all these VHS tapes and they were arranged in categories and you went through the aisles and you found the movie that you wanted to rent and then you got to rent it for a day or two and you would drive it back to your house and then you could watch it on your VHS recorder and after you watched it, you'd have to rewind it because if you forgot to rewind it, I think they charged you an extra dollar. And then you had to drive it back the next day and return the video that you rented. I think it costs like $3 or something, $4 to rent it. And of course, if you didn't bring it back on time, you had to pay a late penalty, right? So you'd have to pay, you know, another day. And sometimes you'd get busy and you'd forget to do it. And then, you know, you could end up paying $8, $10, right? Just to go and, and rent one movie. So this is what we had to do. And so in 2005, the business was starting to come under pressure and the companies weren't doing well. And so in order to kind of maintain viability, Blockbuster wanted to merge with Hollywood Entertainment because, you know, they competed with each other. A lot of their uh, video rental outlets were near each other. And hey, you know, maybe if we consolidate, we can close down some stores, we can get some economies of scale and we could be more competitive in this industry. Well, the U.S. government prevented this merger. They blocked it uh, because they filed an antitrust case and they claimed that if this merger were to go through, that the new company would dominate better than 50% of the video rental market and they can then gouge the consumer. They could charge too much money and it would get really expensive to rent videos if the U.S. government allow this merger to happen. Now think about the absurdity of the U.S. government in 2005 worried about companies having monopoly on home video rental when within a few years nobody was renting videos for home, right? Because what the U.S. government didn't seem to understand or appreciate was that in 1997 a new company was born by the name of Netflix, right? And the government didn't seem to care about Netflix because it was a very small player at the time, but it was growing in market share and it was putting a lot of pressure at the time on Blockbuster Video and Hollywood Entertainment. And in 2005, both of these companies were in competition and losing business to Netflix. Why? Well, because Netflix had a unique business model at that time, which was you picked out a movie And then they mailed it to you, right? They would mail you the movie and with a return envelope, it was free. And then you, after you watched it, you put it back in the envelope and you sent it back to Netflix. So you didn't actually have to drive to the video rental store and you didn't have to worry about rewinding it or you didn't have to worry about not returning it on time and getting hit with a late penalty. You watched it, dropped it in a mailbox, very simple. And this was competing with both Blockbuster and Hollywood Entertainment in 2005 when the U.S. government stopped this merger. Now, of course, I think two years later in 2007, that's when Netflix started streaming, which, of course, if Netflix hadn't put these companies out of business with its prior model, the minute it just started streaming and you no longer even had to use the mail, you just log on to your TV and watch whatever you wanted, streaming would have been the nail in the coffin of all of these home video rentals. It was just two years away from 2005 and the U.S. government couldn't see that. This is how incompetent. What a waste of taxpayer money to try to stop this merger. They should have just let it happen. Look, the government has no foresight. They wanted to break up General Motors in the 1950s because they claimed that it had a monopoly on cars. Think about that nonsense. General Motors had a monopoly. Go out, look at all the cars on the street. How many of them are made by GM? Complete nonsense. GM had plenty of competition in the United States. And of course, what the U.S. government didn't even appreciate at the time was how much competition eventually General Motors was going to have from Japan, from Germany, from all over the world. But of course, the real case that everybody points to as to why it's so important that we 
bust up monopolies, that we need government to protect us from capitalism and the free market. Because without government, we're just going to be dominated by monopolies and they're going to rip us off. They're going to gouge. They're going to cut production. They're going to overcharge us. It's going to be horrible. And we need government and thank God for government to bust up these monopolies and make capitalism work better because left to its own, right, it just degenerates into monopoly. There's no more competition and it's just horrible, right? All that is fantasy. But what everybody wants to point to to prove that this is the case is the government breakup of Standard Oil. That was John D. Rockefeller's company. And it was broken up in 1911 based on the powers that were given to the U.S. government in the Sherman Antitrust Act that had been passed in 1890. And when the government broke up Standard Oil, it broke it up into 33 separate companies. Imagine that. One company became 33 companies. And of course, yes, Standard Oil was a huge company. The founder, J.D. Rockefeller, is still to this day the richest American who has ever lived. I mean, adjusted for inflation. I think at his peak, Rockefeller was worth $1.4 billion in nominal terms, right? But if you adjust that for inflation, the depreciation of the dollar, that $1.4 billion back then translates into about $400 billion today. I mean, that shows you how much inflation there's been, how much the dollar has been debased since the days of J.D. Rockefeller. But if you want to put that in perspective, because that's something like double or more than double uh, the, the net worth of you know Jeff Bezos, who I think is the richest American. Maybe not. It keeps changing. I think it's still Bezos. Uh, but the big difference between a $400 billion net worth for Rockefeller and you know whatever, maybe 200, close to $200 billion for Bezos, is Bezos's net worth is based on the overvaluation of Amazon stock that he owns such a big chunk of. I mean, this valuation is pie in the sky. This is a bubble. Eventually, Amazon stock's going to come crashing down in real terms. I mean, who knows if it will ever come crashing down in nominal terms, but in real terms, the price is going to crash eventually. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors, and add blocks. No custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise, and with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. John D. Rockefeller's $400 billion was based on the real income of all of his businesses. It wasn't based on some stock market bubble because there was no stock market bubble back then. So this was real wealth. This was based on the actual value of these 33 companies rolled into one based on the income that they were able to generate and the income that Rockefeller himself enjoyed because he operated these companies. And by the way, even though he is still the richest American who has ever lived, Rockefeller was actually a pretty frugal guy. I mean, despite his reputation, uh, he didn't live nearly as high a lifestyle, as extravagant a lifestyle as a lot of other very wealthy Americans did during the time who were not nearly as wealthy as Rockefeller. And in fact, it was his frugality that was really the secret of his success and the reason that he became so rich in the first place. And so a lot of people probably don't know the truth about Rockefeller and Standard Oil because they believe the revisionist history that it was this evil monopoly that was doing all this bad stuff and that's why the government broke it up. None of that could be true. It's all revisionist history. It's all fake, but it's all to drive an agenda 
which is to vilify capitalism and hold government out as the savior because it's there to protect us from monopoly when in reality, the only monopolies we have to worry about are the ones created by government. And of course, government in and of itself is a monopoly. Government has the monopoly on force and it abuses that all the time. And it's amazing to me why so many people are worried about monopolies that may form in the free market when if they do, it's only because they did such a good job, but they're worried about that, but they have no concerns about the monopoly power of government when government can enforce its powers at the point of a gun and you've got no say in the matter. But let me go back to the story of Rockefeller. So he initially became wealthy in the kerosene market, right? Dominating that market, he refined oil and turned it into kerosene. That was the main use of oil back in the 1800s was for kerosene. I mean, now it's gasoline because we have cars, but back then people were riding around in horses. But what they didn't have back then was electricity, right? They didn't have a light bulb. They couldn't just flick a switch and they had light. They were burning candles, but then they were burning kerosene, right? That oil in a lantern gave them more light. And so that's what the market was for. And Rockefeller ultimately dominated the market for kerosene. And the reason he was able to do that was because he became the most efficient producer of kerosene. He was able to sell his kerosene for a much lower price than his competitors. Now, obviously, that benefited his customers who were then able to buy the kerosene for less money. And so more people were now able to enjoy light later into the evening because they had better access to the kerosene. But here is the reason that he got so efficient. Back then, when they turned oil into kerosene, about 60% of the oil was used to make kerosene. The rest was waste. And so all these kerosene manufacturers were taking 40% of their oil and just dumping it into rivers. You know, it was sludge. It was pollution. There was all this pollution in the kerosene industry because there was all this extra oil that nobody had anything to do with because they didn't need it because it wasn't used for kerosene. It was the byproduct left over after they refined the oil into kerosene. And so because Rockefeller was such a frugal guy and he hated to waste anything, he tried to figure out what to do with all this oil. So he began storing it all. And some of it he used to generate power in his own plants. But then he started to come up with all sorts of products that he could make using this waste. He started turning it into fertilizer. He started to make lubricants out of it that they used in railroads and machine shops. You know, back in the day, a lot of people were using beeswax. And he came up with paraffin wax, which was less expensive, but did the same job. He started to make paints that were made out of oil. And so he sold direct to consumers. He sold to to businesses. They made candles out of it, dyes. In fact, one of the products that they invented was petroleum jelly. It didn't even exist until Standard Oil figured out a way to take this waste product and turn it into petroleum jelly and then sell that product. And what happened was Standard Oil eventually started to make more money on the products that it was producing with the waste that was the residual from producing kerosene that he was able to use those profits to help lower the cost of kerosene. And as he was doing this, he was driving everybody else out of business. And ultimately, he started buying up all of his less efficient competitors. And of course, once he bought up the competitors, he can then do the same thing with their business. Remember, they were wasting 40% of their oil and now Rockefeller buys them up and now doesn't waste that oil. But in addition to buying up the competitors, he started buying up entire supply chains, pipelines, transportation, refining. You know, then he started to negotiate better. He could get bulk discounts on shipments and things like that because he kept getting bigger and bigger and getting more and more efficient. And as he kept getting bigger and more efficient, he kept increasing production and lowering prices. So by the end of the 1870s, Standard Oil 
was responsible for 90% of all the oil refinery in the country, 90%. By 1874, his share of the petroleum market had increased to 25%. It was only 4% four years earlier in 1870. And by 1880, because he was so efficient and his products were so cheap, his dominance of the petroleum market rose to 85% by 1880. But meanwhile, during those years, from 1869 to 1885, as Rockefeller, through Standard Oil, was monopolizing the oil market, the price of oil fell by 73%. It went from 30 cents a gallon to 8 cents a gallon in 1885. So if you think about that 73% drop over 16 years, it's an average price reduction of 4.5% per year each and every year. Now, of course, the Federal Reserve would think, oh, this is terrible. This is deflation, right? Nobody's going to buy kerosene if the price is dropping by 4.5% a year. Everybody's going to wait for lower prices. No, people kept buying the kerosene because they kept using it to light up their homes and everybody's life was improved because people don't have an unlimited amount of money. And so the lower the price of kerosene gets, the more kerosene you can buy. People who couldn't afford to buy kerosene at higher prices suddenly could afford to buy it at lower prices. So everybody was benefiting from Standard Oil. I mean, think about this. Standard Oil dramatically increased production while reducing pollution, right? All this pollution that was being created by its competitors, they weren't doing that. They were using the waste rather than dumping it in the rivers. They kept lowering prices all the time, creating thousands of jobs. And by the way, Rockefeller's average salaries, what he paid his workers, far exceeded the average salary paid by his competitors. So not only did he not take advantage of the monopoly power to overcharge his customers, he also didn't take advantage of it to underpay his workers because he didn't do that. He was a perfect model of free market business efficiency. And in fact, you could go through all of the transcripts from the trial that resulted in breaking up Standard Oil because it was a monopoly. Look at all that. And there isn't any evidence presented anywhere that they did anything wrong. There was no predatory pricing at all. And in fact, here is the most ridiculous part about it. By the time Standard Oil was broken up in 1911, its share of the oil market on its own through competition had already fallen to 65%. Now still, that's a big number, but a lot less than the 85% it had in 1880. So over about 30 years, while the price of oil continued to fall, Standard Oil's share of the oil market also continued to fall. So Standard Oil did none of the things that monopolies are supposed to do. In fact, it did the exact opposite of what monopolies were supposed to do. It was a great business. And by the way, the fact that Standard Oil even dominated for a while the kerosene market, I mean, the electric light bulb basically ended that market. I mean, once people had electricity, that was much better than burning kerosene. One of the reasons that Standard Oil was so well positioned to transition from making kerosene to making gasoline was around the time that electricity came in and got rid of the need to turn oil into kerosene, all of a sudden people started to use automobiles instead of horses and now they needed gasoline. And Standard Oil already had a lot of that in storage because it was saving it from the byproducts of the kerosene and it already had built up so many other products that there was still demand for. I mean, people didn't stop using petroleum jelly once they had electric houses, no, but they didn't need the kerosene. So he was a great businessman he was a great human being. He was a philanthropist. I mean, he did everything perfectly, yet history has somehow vilified him. I mean, where I do lose a little respect for the Rockefellers is some of his prodigy. You know, his grandson or his great-grandson, they became 
active in politics. They were Republicans. They were Rockefeller Republicans. That's where the term comes from. They were the original Rhino Republicans because they were big Democrat Republicans like Richard Nixon, right? These guys were Rockefeller Republicans. But the original Rockefeller self-made billionaire was a amazing American free market success story, a tribute to the beauty of capitalism and how capitalism benefits everybody. John D. Rockefeller got rich by making the country richer. The country, the people in America collectively benefited much more from the work and the innovation of Rockefeller than Rockefeller himself. Even though he amassed this huge fortune, the savings to the country in the form of increased living standards for an enormous number of people, what the people collectively benefited far exceeded what Rockefeller individually benefited. And by the way, he barely spent any of his own money. He donated it, he endowed it, he used it to invest in other businesses. So the very poster example of why we need more government, why we need antitrust is a complete lie, like almost everything about government. When hiring gets hard, you need Indeed, the job site that makes hiring incredibly simple. You just attract, interview, and then you hire. In fact, with Indeed, you can do all your hiring in just one place, even the interviewing. Don't just hope your perfect candidate will find you. Use Indeed to find them. Indeed has the hiring tools to help you cut through the noise to hire faster and smarter. In fact, with Indeed Instant Match, it will provide you with a list of quality candidates whose resumes are on Indeed the moment you post a sponsored job. Indeed Instant Match helps you make a short list of great candidates fast. The moment you sponsor a job, you get a list of quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job description. Then you can invite them to apply right away. Indeed helps you hire great people fast. Best of all, you only pay for applicants who meet your must-have qualifications. According to TalentNet, Indeed delivers four times more hires than all the other job sites combined. So join the more than 3 million businesses worldwide that already use Indeed. And right now you can get started with a free $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash Peter. Get $75 at Indeed.com slash Peter. That's Indeed.com slash Peter. This offer is valid through September 30th. Terms and conditions apply. As I said, the government used the Sherman Antitrust Act from 1890 to break up Standard Oil, but the government wasn't satisfied with the Sherman Act. A lot of people wanted an act with more teeth because they wanted to break up even more monopolies or prevent cartelization of industries or collusion or all that. So they ended up passing in 1914 the Clayton Antitrust Act. But the main reason I wanted to talk a little bit about the Clayton Act was another reason, and maybe the real reason for the Clayton Act was to exempt unions from the Sherman Act because the labor union movement was really growing and the Sherman Act was now being used against labor unions. After all, part of the Sherman Antitrust Act was that companies could not collude with one another to fix prices. They needed to compete. You couldn't get several companies all coming together and agreeing, hey, this is the price we're going to charge for our products because the government wanted all these companies competing and not just agreeing among themselves to have a high price that would hurt the consumer. Well, think about what labor unions do. Labor unions is where workers collude with one another to fix prices. Instead of competing against each other and offering lower prices to employers, which would be wages, they want to all collude and they want to go to the employer and say, hey, here's this one high price and you have to pay everybody this high price. And in fact, the workers are coming together and they're saying, look, we can't compete with one another because that's going to drive wages down. Just like when businesses compete, it drives prices down, the workers said, we don't want to compete with each other and who's going to work for the lowest price. Let's all come together 
in this labor monopoly and we're going to go to our employer and say, hey, here's the price we've all agreed on and you've got to pay this and nobody is going to work for you for less money. You've got to pay this monopoly price. So really what labor unions were doing is exactly what the Sherman Act said you couldn't do. And so what happened with Clayton is they specifically exempted labor unions from antitrust. They said, no, unions can do that. Businesses can't collude to raise prices, but it's okay for workers to collude to raise wages. Because after all, all wages are are prices. They're the price of labor. But for some reason, it's bad for businesses to gouge consumers with high prices, but it's okay for workers to gouge their employers with high wages. Oh, and by the way, if workers are gouging their employers with high wages, the employers pass on those high wages to their customers. So the customers are being indirectly gouged by the labor unions. But apparently the politicians think it's fine if labor unions gouge customers. They just don't want the employers to gouge the customers directly. So it's really not about the customers because at the end of the day, the customer is still getting gouged. What it was really about is the voters. I think the politicians wanted the votes of the labor unions. And of course, the labor unions were very active in politics. So it was a, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. But all of this really tilted the playing field heavily in favor of these labor unions. You know, it legalized the strikes and the boycotts, and it really gave labor too much power in this negotiation process, which really is the main reason, apart from excess regulation and taxes, that America's industrial base so disintegrated because the labor unions were most heavily concentrated in the area of manufacturing. And in fact, at their heyday, I think it was 1954, 34% of the U.S. workforce was unionized. That was the heyday of American unions. I mean, now I think that number is closer to 10%. But if you just look at the private sector today, it's only about 6% of the total U.S. workforce is in labor unions, whereas back in 1954, that 34% was almost all in the private sector. The public sector unions really hadn't gained a lot of traction the way they are today. Today, 37% of government workers are unionized. Back in 1954, that percentage was much, much smaller. I don't know what it was, but it was significantly smaller. Where the unions were the most powerful were in manufacturing. And of course, that's where the wages were the highest anyway. It was in manufacturing. And so the labor unions developed there, But because of the power that they had, they ultimately drove a lot of these companies out of business. They caused them to be less competitive. And because they were less competitive, they kept losing market share, mainly to foreign businesses that did not have to deal with the U.S. labor unions. So a lot of U.S. manufacturers then came into competition with foreign manufacturers and American customers now started to buy those products that were made abroad because they were better deals because the prices weren't artificially inflated by labor unions. And so the labor unions themselves ended up destroying the jobs of their membership. That's why the membership really deteriorated. And of course, ironically, by forcing employers to overpay workers through these unions. The employers had lower profits that they would have otherwise used to invest in growing their businesses and additional capital formation, which is actually the real reason that wages go up. Wages rise as a function of productivity. And in general, workers become more productive when their employers provide them with more capital. Now, sometimes they become more productive because they gain experience. They become more skilled as they work longer and they're able to earn more for that reason. But one of the main reasons that workers are more productive is because they have tools that increase their productivity. But where do the employers get these tools? Well, they get these tools from the capital investments that are made from their profits. But if their profits are shrinking because too much is being diverted in the short run to excessively high wages, then they don't have the 
money to make the capital investments. But the competitors in Germany and Japan who are not bound by these contracts, who are operating in free markets and could get a better deal on their labor, well, they had all the capital to make these innovative investments and now they dominate. I mean, it's not an accident. All the stuff that we used to make ourselves, we now import. And one of the main reasons is because the unions drove the American businesses out of business by making them uncompetitive and inefficient. So it's not an accident. When people keep talking about, oh, the heyday when we used to have all these unions and now we don't have them anymore. Yes, it's because they destroyed all the businesses that they used to work for. All those union jobs were destroyed by the unions. And when people want to give credit to the unions for the high wages, that's nonsense. The high wages were a result of capitalism and productivity. Wages were ultimately lowered as a result of labor unions. And remember, Henry Ford famously paid his workers $5 a day before there were any labor unions. The Ford workers were not unionized. I forget, I've done the calculations before, but adjusted for inflation, that's something like $100,000 a year. Ford workers, 100 years ago, that worked for Henry Ford, in real terms, were making more money than the people who work for Ford today, even though Ford workers are unionized now. They weren't unionized back then, and they were making like twice as much money before there were any labor unions as they are today. The one place that labor unions have succeeded is in government. I mean, they're succeeding somewhat now in services, because after they destroyed all these manufacturing jobs, they kind of migrated over to the service sector because the service sector doesn't have the same type of foreign competition as a manufacturing, but the service sector jobs are not nearly as high paying. And so there really wasn't a lot of room there for the labor unions because remember the labor unions take a good chunk out of a worker's paycheck in order to pay for the lavish lifestyles of the union representatives. And so when you're trying to unionize lower paying jobs, there's not as much money there. But the manufacturing jobs were already higher paying thanks to capitalism. And that's what allowed them to afford the cost of unionization, which ultimately was their own demise. But where unions have exceeded dramatically is in the public sector, in government. Today, 37% of government workers are in unions. And this is a disgrace. I mean, first of all, government workers should not even be allowed to be in unions. I mean, I am not against private sector unions. I don't like special protections for unions. It needs to be a level playing field, but I'm not against people forming unions. But I don't think that they should be able to force employers, hey, you want to have a union? Fine, but I don't have to hire you. I can hire non-union workers. I can fire you if you strike. I mean, it's got to be freedom across the board. But the one place that I think unionization should be illegal is in government. I think if you accept a job from the government, you give up the right to unionize. If you want to be in a job where you can be in a union, well, then get a private sector job. But if you're going to be a public servant, you're not going to hold the public that you serve hostage, you know, with a strike. You know, you get these teacher strikes and stuff like that. None of this should be allowed. In fact, even Franklin Delano Roosevelt, right, the champion of big government, big liberal, FDR, New Deal, even FDR was against government unions. Here are the two big problems with government unions and why government unions are so successful. Number one is they don't have to worry about competition, right? When government is a monopoly, they don't compete. So if unions make the cost of providing government services more expensive, the taxpayers don't have a choice. They can't get those services from some other government. They've got their one government. And what happens is the government just raises taxes in order to pay the higher wages that are being demanded by government unionized workers. And so you don't have the competition that you have in the private sector, where if unions push up the price too high, customers go someplace else, the customers are stuck. And so the overpaid government workers keep their jobs, unlike overpaid private sector workers end up losing their jobs. 
that doesn't happen in government. So that's why these government unionized workers are still there and why their numbers continue to grow because they don't destroy themselves the way the private sector unions do because the unions end up being a parasite on the company and eventually they kill the company and now the parasite dies too because it's not a symbiotic relationship. But the taxpayers keep the governments alive no matter how much money the government workers suck out of it. But the other big problem with government unions, and this is, I think, the real reason, too, that FDR was opposed to it, apart from the fact that if you're a public servant, well, you're serving the public, right? You're, you're not supposed to be holding the public hostage or gouging the public. But normally, when you have a private sector union, you have an arm's length negotiation between two parties that have an opposite interest, right? You have the employer who wants to buy labor as inexpensively as he can. And then you have the union that wants to sell their labor for as much as they can, right? So you have two parties that are trying to negotiate a deal where clearly each party has a separate agenda as to what benefits them. So they're negotiating and they're going to end up striking a bargain, right? That's, you know, that's what they're doing, collective bargaining. And they're going to bargain for a price that somehow is acceptable to both parties. Obviously, the workers are not going to get as much as they want. They're not going to get all the benefits that they want. The employer is not going to get to get the workers as cheaply as he wants. There's going to be some medium in negotiation where they're going to get a contract. Well, this is not what happens with the government. Because when you have a company, it's a private company, whatever money is not paid to the workers is left over for the company in terms of higher profits. But governments don't have profits. When labor unions are negotiating with governments, they are negotiating with employees of the government. They don't own the government. It doesn't matter to the government how much they pay the unionized workers because it's not their money. The money belongs to the taxpayer. So they they don't have any skin in the game. But what makes it even worse is when the government is negotiating with government employee unions, they don't actually look at these unionized workers as employees. They look at them as voters because they know Every union member is a voter. And so the government wants to make these voters happy. And how do you make these voters happy? Well, you pay them more money. You give in to whatever demand they have. And so it's not really an arm's length negotiation because both parties really share the same interest. Everybody wants the workers to be happy. The workers want to be happy. They want more money. The politicians want them to be happy. So they're willing to give them more money. It's not even their money anyway. So what do they care? They want the votes. But also, it's not just the votes. The labor unions themselves contribute money directly to the campaigns of the people that they're negotiating with. They help elect them. In fact, they use the labor union to help get out the vote. Not only do they endorse the campaigns of the politicians who are agreeing to these inflated uh, pay packages, but they help elect them by getting out the vote and campaigning. So this whole thing is an incestuous relationship, except it's the taxpayer that ends up getting screwed because these government workers are so overpaid based on this process. And so that's why these unions are so successful when it comes to government, because there are no free market forces. There's no legitimate negotiations. And so the public is stuck with these high prices. And of course, not only do you get high prices, you get bad service because the government workers are protected from being fired. You can't have any merit-based pay. I mean, that's why these teacher unions, right, for all the talk about how teachers are underpaid, teachers are incredibly overpaid. And one of the reasons is because of these teachers' unions. And a lot of people just look at the wages that teachers earn, and they forget about all of the vacations that they have. They have these long summer vacations. They have other breaks. Their hours aren't that long. So they get a lot of free time. A lot of these teachers have other jobs that they earn money on in the summer when they're not teaching. But this should be illegal. The unions should not be allowed to do this. And this is why these teacher unions are so opposed to school choice. They're so opposed to vouchers. They don't want any competition. They want 
the public stuck in these inefficient government schools so that they can keep ripping off the public with excessively high wages. And it's not just the wages. It's the whole administrative bureaucracy that surrounds it, not just the teachers. You've got a whole bureaucracy that's built up around the teachers. Look, everything that the government does is always going to be more expensive. Look, there's a perfect example of this. I was reading an article on Zero Hedge earlier to last night about this program to shelter the homeless in San Francisco. They passed this bill early on in COVID. In theory, they wanted to kind of get the homeless people off the streets because they didn't want them spreading COVID. So they imposed this tax on businesses and this tax money was earmarked for sheltering the homeless. So basically what they did is they they bought a bunch of little pup tents and they kind of pitched these tents like in parking lots. And so now the homeless can go in this little tent on cement. I mean, they're still living outdoors. But then what they did is they built maybe a public washroom where they can shower and, and use the bathroom facilities. So they, they have that shared facility where they can take baths and, and stuff like that. And they're feeding them. They're providing them with meals on a daily basis. So they've already spent, according to these articles I read, they've already spent $18.2 million on the program. And there's 260 tents. And each tent is housing one homeless person. So if you do the math, $18.2 million for 260 tents, the government has spent $70,000 per tent. Imagine that, $70,000 for a tent. You know, I, I would have loved to have had that contract. I'm imagining that somebody's brother-in-law got a contract to sell these overpriced tents to the government of San Francisco so they have a place for the homeless. But of course, it's not just the price of the tents. It's the administration, right? Obviously, there's a lot of government workers that have gone into this whole process that is inflating the cost and making it so expensive. And I guess the reason they've ran the article is because now the government needs more money. It wants to continue the program. And so it's asking for some additional money to continue to maintain the program. Apparently now they only want $15 million as opposed to 18.2. So I guess the price per tent is coming down. Now it's a little under 58,000 per tent as opposed to 70,000. Because I guess now that they've already got the fixed cost, right? They own the tents, right? So they don't have to buy those tents again, but they still have to cover the cost of feeding and, and all the other personnel who are behind the scenes, right? Well, the point I'm making here is if the government is this inefficient about pitching tents for 260 homeless people, if it spent $70,000 per tent, and now it wants to spend $57,000 per tent, imagine how inefficient the government school system is, because it's the same people who are operating the school system who are operating this tent city. I mean, think about that, $70,000, even at the lower price of $57,000 per tent. Medium income, in the United States is $35,000. You've got people who are employed, who aren't homeless, who are renting apartments, who are living and feeding themselves, and they're making $35,000 a year. These guys are getting paid 70, now 57,000 a year to live in a tent. I mean, think about that. What could the private sector do with those resources? I mean, it would be very simple. Even if the government wanted to have this asinine program, and remember, it's funded by a tax, what the government could have done with this tax money, instead of erecting these ridiculous tent cities and parking lots, right? they could have simply said, okay, we have this pool of money that we've collected from employers. We're going to give employers a tax credit for each homeless person that you hire. We'll give you like a $35,000 tax credit, and you could use that money to employ this homeless person and give that person a job and then they can take that job and they can rent an apartment and they can buy food in the grocery store and they'd be living in an actual apartment as opposed to a tent. You know, even in San Francisco, 35000 a year is about twice the rent on a one-bedroom apartment. But of course, why would they need a one-bedroom apartment in San Francisco? I mean, they're homeless. Can't they be shipped 
to a less expensive part of California in order to live? Why do they need to live in San Francisco? Normally, you live in San Francisco because that's where your job is. Well, maybe they can get a job in a less expensive part of California. In fact, maybe they can leave California. Maybe California could just buy them a bus ticket or a plane ticket and give them some cash. In fact, they could buy them a car. With all the money they're spending, they can go out and buy them a used car, although used car prices have really been going up. But still, with that kind of budget, they could buy every homeless person a used car and set them up in an apartment for less money than it's costing to put them in a little pup tent, even if the government created some crazy job. I mean, why aren't these homeless people at least picking up trash in the street? Why can't they work? And then they could take the money that they were paid in salary and rent an apartment or even share a two-bedroom apartment, get a roommate. It's better than living in a tent. They have plenty of money. But this simply illustrates how inefficient government is at anything that it does. And so the key to economic success is keeping as much money as you can away from the government and leaving as much money as you can in the private sector. Because when the government takes money out of the private sector, you end up with these $60,000 pup tents. Leave it in the private sector where it can be invested efficiently, what we're doing right now, what the Biden administration wants to do with all this new infrastructure spending and all this other crap is they want to make government much, much bigger. So we squander even more of our resources. And as a result of squandering resources that the private sector would have otherwise used efficiently, the whole country is made poorer as a result of making government bigger. (music) 